Hello, we're continuing our study of Job today. This is the fifth lesson of the book of Job. And just to review, uh, we've seen from the beginning how God commended Job for his uprightness, his faithfulness, his fear of God. And then Satan had asked to remove and strip away everything materially and even physically with his health that Job had. And for a, a series of three long discourses between Job and three of his friends, we, we see a crescendo of um, accusations and it gets nastier and nastier as time goes on between the friends and Job, but yet Job throughout the time was maintaining his integrity and trying to, to tell his friends this wasn't his fault. He didn't do anything to deserve this. And then the last few chapters was a, a monologue by Job uh, really defending his integrity. It culminated with chapter 31, which I believe is one of the strongest ethical chapters of ethical teaching in the entire Bible. And um, Job just talked about how he had done exactly what he understood God wanted him to do and treated people fairly, avoided lust, and all of those things that chapter 31 describes. And then he fell silent. And a, a fourth friend, if you will, appears on the scene in chapter 32 named Elihu. And Elihu seems to be, according to his own description, a younger person than Job and his three friends. And he has been waiting in silence because at that time the younger people respected the older people and let them speak first. And after all those guys were finished speaking, including Job, Elihu began to speak up, and he felt uh, in his heart that in some way he had to defend God and God's integrity. And uh, that was the main reason he was speaking. Uh, he, he thought that the friends of Job didn't do a good job of explaining why he was in the situation he was in, and he certainly didn't agree with Job that Job had not sinned to cause this problem. Because Elihu, like the friends, believed in the concept of retribution, that if you do something bad, you get bad in return, and if you do something good, you get good in return. One thing different about Elihu is that he, he was speaking and telling uh, people that you cannot compel God to do anything. He had kind of a maybe a larger view of God that, uh, than the other friends did, that God doesn't rigidly cause someone to suffer as punishment for sin, even though that was the uh, conventional wisdom of the day. And Elihu also saw suffering as accomplishing several purposes in addition to punishment. He was not trying to defend a system of teaching. He was more attempting to defend God. And again, God doesn't really need our defense but we learn some things theologically about God from the six chapters that Elihu was speaking. And um, I'd like to go through a couple of those things before we get to our main text of the day, which is chapter 36. Um, if you go back to Job 33, you can see some things about God that Elihu tells us. Let's look at verse 8. I'll read a few verses. It says, Surely... You have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. 
I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks and watches all my paths. Now this is uh, Elihu quoting what he believed to be Job, saying that Job was more or less sinless. And we all know from the New Testament that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Even though Job was commended as being righteous, there was still some sin in him. But the, the degree to which uh, Elihu believed Job was a sinner was probably not, uh, not accurate. So here's what he has to say about God beginning in verse 12 of chapter 33. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword." Now this little passage here talks about how God speaks to us in different ways. Obviously to us, the the main way God speaks is through His written Word, the Bible, and the 66 books that we have today. But during those days, uh, they may not have had any of the books of the Bible written down yet. But God was still speaking to them primarily through dreams and, and visions, and maybe even directly. But the purpose of God speaking, as he says in verse 18, is to try to keep us from being punished for our sins and perishing because of our sins. So this is an important thing to know that one of the purposes of God's word, even back then, was to show us what is right and what is wrong and what our creator uh, requires of us as, as his creation. He certainly has the ability to uh, tell us whatever he wants to do. If we go back to verse 4, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And by virtue of being our Creator, God is able to command us what is right and what is wrong. So that is, that is an important thing to note when it comes to the idea of uh, right and wrong. And here is another uh, passage in, in chapter 34 that um, is very important theologically about God and His sovereignty and His justice. Uh, Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 34. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that He should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that He should do wrong. For according to the work of a man He will repay him, and according to His ways He will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set it to heart, his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and all man would return to dust. If we look at the overall uh, thrust of the book of Job, the overall theme is why do good people suffer harm and and bad in their life. And um, I think verse 10 or verse 11 
tells us that God will not do anything that is uh, unjust, that God always will do the right thing. And even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of uh, when we don't understand what's going on, we know one thing's for sure, that God is in control and he will always do the right thing. Now, for the, the guys in that time in the story of Job, their, their biggest concern is that Job has done something wrong and he's getting punished for what he deserves. And I think that uh, the, the whole book makes it clear that that is not why Job is suffering. From the very beginning, God commended Job and gave Satan a challenge to say, yeah, he will continue in his integrity even if you take all of those things away from him for no reason. It's important to note that all suffering is the result of sin in general, but not all suffering is the direct result of a person's individual sin in particular. You see that in um, the, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He suffered greatly through prison, through being sold as a slave, and all of those things. But in the end, he said to his brothers who sold him as a slave, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So God had a different purpose for Joseph's suffering. And then we also see the man born blind in John chapter 9. The disciples were asking, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born this way for the glory of God so that God would bring glory to himself when Jesus healed him. Now, obviously, the parents and the man himself were sinners. They weren't sinless. But the, the point was he wasn't born blind because of one of them sinned. And neither was Job suffering because of his own personal sin. Now, a lot of us have a, an idea that we want things to be fair in life. We want what we perceive to be justice. And we don't like it when we're treated unfairly in a work situation or even kids in school. Some people get favoritism, some don't. Uh, that just rubs us all the wrong way because in our own sense of justice, we want to be treated fairly. But we must be very careful when we try to apply that to God to say we want justice from God because if we got justice from God, every single one of us would be condemned eternally to a separation from Him in a place called hell because even one sin in our lives is enough to condemn us and separate us from God. The book of James tells us that if you keep the whole law and yet stumble in only one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it. And so if we really wanted justice from God, none of us would be able to be with him in heaven. What we really want from God is his grace and his mercy. And that's kind of a, the theme of this particular lesson overall. So if we get into chapter 36, let's look at in specific terms about some of the things Elihu said, highlighting God's greatness, his goodness, his majesty, and even his justice. Um, the first 
few verses of chapter 36 proclaim God's goodness to Job. Let's read uh, the first few verses of chapter 36. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my master. Truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right or justice. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with the king's on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. In these verses, Elihu was describing the righteousness of God and claiming that God may use affliction to draw people to himself, even people who are righteous. He might use that in their lives as he did with Job and many others in the Bible. Elihu had his focus more on God than on Job at this point. He wanted everyone to know that God was good and just, and he would always do the right thing. And then, later on in the chapter, we start seeing a change in, in the tone and what's going on around uh, these people, the friends and Job who are all sitting together, assume, assuming that's still the case, that they're all together. Beginning in verse 24 of chapter 36, he starts talking about God's majesty. It says, I Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the wa- drops of water, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Now what we're seeing here is um, a visual image of a massive storm gathering around these people as they're with Job. We're seeing uh, slowly the, the clouds beginning to form and then thunder and lightning starting, then rain and then Go all the way up to the next chapter of chapter 38. Um, God speaking directly to them out of what they call the whirlwind. So throughout this time, it may have been as little as one day where all of this, uh, these events took place. But uh, we don't know how long 
the duration of it was, but at the end here, as Elihu wraps up his speech, uh, we see this great storm gathering. And that storm is a visual indication of God's power and might and majesty. And that um, they're even acknowledging through the weather that this is God and he's showing how, how awesome and how powerful he is. And it just brings the whole story to a fitting, a fitting end of how they've all been uh, talking incessantly for many chapters about how bad Job is, how he must repent, and Job defending himself, saying he didn't do anything wrong. And then all of a sudden, God begins to step in, and we'll see that more in the lesson next week. But I want us to, to look at some points of application this concept of God's providence and God's sovereignty as it relates to his justice and justice in the world. The doctrine of God's providence is the truth that he controls the circumstances of everyday history so as to work out his purposes. There's nothing meaningless or out of control in human history that God did not sovereignly ordain or providentially will. In fact, there are three things we can affirm about God's providential relationship with human history. First, we believe that God intervenes in human history. Second, we believe that God guides human history, even individuals' lives. And finally, we believe that God will bring history and even situations in our lives to the conclusion that He has planned. This is not merely an abstract academic or philosophical proposition but lies at the heart of our personal trust in God's loving control over all things. When we experience difficulties, trials, or suffering, we might be tempted to think, where is God? What is He doing? Doesn't He care? God does care, and He knows what He's doing. There are times when we may not understand what is happening in the moment, but we must reassure ourselves of the truth that God remains sovereign over every aspect of the universe and every detail of our lives. Most of the time, it's hard to see God's hand in difficult situations. So we must trust His heart. We can trust that God is in control, even in our trials. That's something to remember as we conclude this study of Elihu's speeches from Job 32 through 37, we must remember that God is always in control. And even when we don't understand what he's doing, we can trust him because we know he'll never do anything wrong. He loves us. He always has our best interest at heart. And that's something that no matter what you're going through, you can uh, trust God because he is almighty, sovereign, and in control of everything. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for this reminder that no matter what we're facing, no matter how unjust it may seem, that we don't deserve what we're getting. Lord, we we know that uh, anything good that we have is a gift from you that's only as a result of your grace and mercy, because we do deserve nothing but your punishment. And we just thank you that you've provided through Jesus Christ that 
opportunity for us to be forgiven of our sins and turn to you in repentance and faith, Lord. We, we thank you that we can trust your heart even though we can't understand what's going on in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.